Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuckologists? How are you? Mark Marin here. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. If you're new to it, or uh, I just, uh, you know, I'm in the habit of saying welcome. I hope uh, hope everyone's having an okay Monday already. Or, you know, yeah, do what you can. Ah, uh, God damn it. How's it going? You all right? So today on the show, Alfred Molina is here, uh, which is great. One of the great actors. Very exciting guy. Very exciting to talk to. And of course, of course, I talked to him about that scene. Come on. Um, he's got, he's, he, he's constantly working. I, right now he's a voice actor on, uh, the 10 part narrative mystery podcast, the angel of vine. You can get that where you get podcasts and you can listen to me and Alfred talk in a few minutes. I have some housekeeping though. I have a, a bit of housekeeping, a couple of things, a couple of things in relation to the last episode, the Gary Clark episode, which I'm so happy that people enjoyed so much. We had a very nice time. I might see him in Austin. Did I mention I'm going to Austin? Have I mentioned that? I've been, you know, I don't know if I've gotten you up to date, but let's do the housekeeping first, which is I was talking about Jason Isbell, who made a statement on Twitter, which was old guitars aren't really all that special. And uh, I, I didn't do any research. I don't know why I just saw that part of it. But I don't want to misrepresent Jason's view of old guitars because the tweet he was responding to was, if you were kidnapped and were being forced to tweet so things appeared normal, what would you tweet to alert us you need help? Old guitars aren't really all that special. So it's the exact opposite, which makes more sense. But, you know, I'm willing to believe shit at face value at first until someone calls me out and says, dude... That was a that was an ironic. So uh, so I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea about Jason. The other thing, and I'm going to talk about Jason more in a minute. The other thing is that Magic Sam piece that I was obsessed with and am, and am obsessed with that I played for at the beginning of the Gary Clark thing, which was a conversation we had, is actually called. It's not called Sam's Boogie. It's actually called Looking Good, and it's actually a cut on. Um, on the West Side Soul album, which I have, and I didn't realize I had it, and I didn't realize that song was on there because that live version is just so crazy on fire, and the unlive, unlive, not live version of it is a little more um, laid back, but you know, probably a little more of a portal or a key to how to learn how to play it. Okay, 
So that being said, while we're in the music groove here, uh, I, as you know, there there have been many musical guests on this show. Many of them have played, and almost all of them, I would say all of those moments, for me, are beyond anything I can even imagine. I mean, to have people play guitar and sing right in front of you, literally three feet away from me in front of, you know, right here, and I'm just, it's just me and them in here, and I'm just on my dumb little mixer trying to make it sound right, trying to make the levels not peak. I'm no master engineer, but I've recorded some amazing people in here, and it's been some of the most amazing experiences in my life. And people have always asked us, me and Brendan, that being, about putting together a compilation of these songs, you know, from the show. And we always wanted to, but it's a tricky thing to do logistically. So, good news. We got hooked up with the folks at Newberry Comics who were interested in doing uh, like a, something, you know, something with us. And, and in partnership with them, we've put together, uh, I think, something really special. Record Store Day is on April 13th. And for this year's Record Store Day, we're releasing an exclusive limited edition vinyl album called In the Garage, live music from WTF with Mark Marin, And it's got some great performances on it. Okay, these are 10 acoustic performances with uh, Jay Maskus, Melissa Etheridge, E from Eels, uh, Karen Kilgariff, Ben Harper and Charlie Musselwhite, Nick Lowe, Margot Price, Jason Isbell, Amy Mann, and Dave Alvin. And I actually play uh, with Dave Alvin on that track. I mean, all these artists in re responding to this record uh, were extremely generous in allowing their performances to be featured on the album. And uh, Brendan and I are donating our proceeds to the charity Musicians on Call, who bring music to the patients of healthcare facilities and uh, bring a little joy uh, into their day. So, Record Store Day 2019 is happening April 13th, so you can pick up your copy then. Participating stores can be found at recordstoreday.com. And I listened to the test pressing of this thing, and it's pretty... It, uh, it, you know, when you you heard the, the list of artists that I just told you about, and like why, if you put their produced music, uh, you know, from their albums up against each other, it would seem very odd. You know, it probably wouldn't fit together, but they all fit beautifully together because it's recorded in the same way. Very simply, very, I'm not going to say badly, because I use pretty good mics, but uh, but basically, the setup here is it's the same mic that we talk into. It's an SM7, a Shure SM7. I don't have any effects. I don't know how to use even this very simple mixer. So I just stick that mic in their face, and I stick a mic... Uh, in front of their guitar. Back in the day, it was a blue Encore 200, only because I had them. And then I would just sit here, and it's on one track. They're not even separate tracks. I record on one track of GarageBand. So any conversation, it makes it difficult, probably, certainly difficult to to do any remastering or, or work with the song after the fact. But for me and Brendan, it's pretty, even then, you know, two tracks would be nice, but uh, I don't. So all of these recordings are done the same way you know except for the uh the jason isbel one so with that as the through line basically with the garage and my way of recording people which is very raw and straight up uh it it provides a connector and it all the performances are are relative you know or or you know done like that these are all just people with guitars and a harmonica in the case of charlie musselwhite and they all fit together because you just hear the artist 
you know, with a guitar. And I tell you, man, uh, I, you know, I can't, like, I can't tell you how I like talking to people, of course, but there's also something about these recordings that I think are, are exactly like what happens here. Uh, all these were done, I believe in the old garage, but these performances were great. And every one of them sitting across from Jay Mascus with his antique Gibson, just going at it. It's just amazing. Melissa Etheridge is probably one of the most charismatic and, and moving performances I've ever seen in this place, in my old garage. E was great. Karen Kilgariff made me cry. Ben Harper and Charlie Musselwhite. Charlie Musselwhite is one of the last of the great old harp players. Nick Lowe singing The Beast in Me because I asked him, great. Margot Price, come on. Amy Mann, solid. And me and Dave Alvin, Dave being very gracious, letting me play with him. But the Jason Isbell one is the only one that wasn't recorded here in the garage. And I've told this story before, but just so you know, you know, in relation to us talking about music, in relation to us talking about this release of this record, Jason Isbell, I didn't know a lot about him or his music until I realized that we were both going to be doing the same show up in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, I think. We were, we were both on an episode of Wits, that uh, radio show, that podcast. So I, I got in touch with him probably through Twitter initially and I said we should talk and then I got caught up on his work and then we got there and I met him at that show and we did the show and he'd been on the road for weeks and we were staying in the same hotel and late, and that night at about 12, 31 o'clock, I went and interviewed him in his room and then I sat there with him with his guitar. He had a guitar, it was in a hotel room. We we're both exhausted. He, he probably more than me. And I sat in front of him and I held the mics. I held one mic to his guitar and I handheld one mic to his face and I sat in a chair right in front of him and he did that song, Elephant. And it was one of the most moving musical experiences I've had in my life. It's a very intimate, odd recording, almost like a field recording of a song that that is a powerful song and, and heartbreaking in its own right. But just the... Uh, the intimacy of the recording process was pretty crazy, but uh, that's on there. So, okay. So I guess I'm just telling you my experience with these things and uh, that, that, that album will be available from Newberry comics on record store day, 2019. Uh, it's happening April 13th. You can get a copy then and you can find participating stores at recordstoreday.com. And I imagine that you can go ahead and, and tell them if you have a store that you are in relationship with, you can tell them maybe they could get you one. So, yeah, I'll get you up to speed here. Oh, you know what I did? I, you know, I put the uh, the old rug from the old garage up in uh, one of the bedrooms in my house here. That's going to be sort of an office ish kind of space. And I unrolled that rug, and I and I I remember I had vacuumed it when I got to this house out on the fr- out in the front yard. And then I brought it up into the bedroom last night and I vacuumed it again. It was just like inches and inches of dust. And I just, I, and I've talked about this before in, in, ter- in relation to that fucking rug. But here it is in a new place, in a new home. And all that dust from all those talks, little bits of skin and pieces of dirt from the journeys of my guests. It's just sort of weird. It was like, the, you know, the history of WTF and dust. I could make that available. Would anyone like a vial of a WTF dust? from the uh from i guess uh skin and hair and things that come off of the guests any any hundred i got to assume some of that shit's been in there since the beginning you never know how the things lodge a history in dust but now i i threw it away 
They should I, should I kept it? What do you keep shit for? Why am I even keeping that rug? I've, I've had that rug forever. It's been through several apartments, a house, and then it ended up in the garage. But, uh, you know, it, you attach meaning. You attach meaning. Yeah, that rug. It's a magic carpet, man. Yeah, man. Magic carpet. Mm-hmm. I like to. I don't even know the words to that magic carpet ride. But so yeah, I'm going to uh, be at South by Southwest for a few days this week. Uh, the premiere of the film, The Sword of Trust, that I am in, uh, Lynn Shelton film, a completely improvised movie. It was a uh, shot. I mean, I, th- I think some of you were with me during this. It was shot in Birmingham, Alabama. It was, uh, it's, it's me, Jillian Bell, uh, John Bass, uh, Michaela Watkins uh, uh, are the primary characters. Lynn Shelton directed it and has a small role in it. Dan Backdahl is also in it. Toby Huss is in it, uh, among a few other people from the area. And uh, we improvise that in about three weeks. And now it's a movie, and it got into South by Southwest, and the premiere is Friday night. All the music for the film is um, music that was played here in this garage or in the other garage. We, she kind of, Lynn took a lot of my guitar pieces and layered them throughout the movie. And then the, the song under the credits, the instrumental under the credits, is something that me and Tal Wilkenfeld uh, wrote and uh, played in a studio with some amazing musicians, Doyle Bramhall, one of them. And well, anyway, so I'm going to be at South by South uh, West for just a few nights. And I'm more importantly, uh, in terms of that trip there, you know, the premiere is exciting, but Opie's barbecue, Opie's going to go to Opie's and Spicewood. Always great. So Yes, I'm looking forward to the movie premiere and doing press for that and uh, being part of that. But uh, I don't know. It's pretty pretty 50-50, you know, movie premiere, Opie's. Alfred Molina, obviously one of everyone's favorite actors. Maybe you don't know that, but he is. And uh, it, was, it was definitely a great, you know, honor and exciting thing to talk to him. And he lives not far from me, which made it even better for him. You can hear him currently as a voice actor on the 10-part Narrative Mystery Podcast, The Angel of Vine, which is available wherever you, wherever you get the podcasts. And uh, and you've seen him in everything you've seen him in. Go look him up if you're like, who? Because that's crazy. This is me talking to Alfred Molina. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts.
Yeah. How long have you lived in up in this area? Only about a year and a half. It's, um, it's, I lived in I lived in Hollywood before that because uh, you had to. No, just because it's just <laughs> it's just where we ended up. You know, there was uh, when we, when we first arrived in the states, uh, we arrived in New York, and uh, the uh, when was that? That was ninety ninety three. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I'd been coming here to work um, on and off since the mid eighties. Yeah, but always just for a specific job or something yeah. like that. And this time uh, we came out and it, we kind of made a conscious effort decision to uh, to live here and, you know. To do the L.A. thing. Do the L.A. thing. Yeah. We arrived in New York and I was, we were hoping to stay in New York. Yeah. But then my then agent kind of said, oh, no, you know, you've you, you got to be where the action is, blah, blah, blah. Right. And come to L.A. So we kind of came to L.A. and uh, But what I didn't realize in my naivety at the time was that L.A. Hollywood is not the center of the film industry it's the center of where they'd make the it's the center of the film business yeah right you know it's yeah. where the deals are made it's where you know it's not where the work is made not not as much anymore no and and we could have easily i mean i can see now we could have easily have stayed in new york which we preferred um but then you're gonna you know. be flying out here every other week yeah and, but you know what i that's not so bad <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know it's not like you you know, they fly you and they take care of you. It's, it's, uh, you can still do it. You can still go back to New York. I could, I could. But you know, now, of course, I think we missed out. We sort of missed the boat a little bit, I think. Cause you missed York, the window to get the uh, yeah. to buy the building in Brooklyn? That's right, yeah, we, when things were cheap. I mean, it's... Uh, mind you, I've always been... I've always had terrible luck with, with buying houses like that. We've always, I've always seemed to have sold when the market was low <laughs> and bought when the market was our high. Yeah. It's not, I've never been one of those people. You know, I have friends who are like that, friends who kind of do, do things like, oh, got this for a steal you know yeah. you know i got you know and, they, and they'll say things like there's all these buzz buzzwords like you know i bought when the i bought it when you know when, when it was a, a when it sank i bought yeah. this when it was good and aren't I, they I, annoying those people they piss me off a little bit because <laughs> because <laughs> it's because what they're saying there is what they're, they're not celebrating the fact that they've had a stroke of good luck they're celebrating and lording it over you of how stupid you are that you didn't manage to do the same thing. Yeah, you know, it's a kind of it's a kind of modesty brag combined with a sort of slap around the face. Yeah, it, you yeah. know, it's like you know, I could do this and you didn't. Right, yeah, it always reminds it reminds yeah. me of that great thing that Chevy Chase used to do when he was on uh, Saturday Night Live. When he was when he would he would say, "Hi, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're, you're not. not." Yeah, yeah. It's like, "Hi, I'm a you know, I'm a lucky fucker, and you're not." <laughs> yeah, you, know? you don't have the foresight or the wisdom <laughs> or right. anything. You're, 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 right. Or the luck, yeah. you can't. Yeah. How do you function in the world? I'm a lover. You're a loser. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, like, I don't know about you, but I buy when, when I I've only owned two houses in my life, and uh, I live in them. I don't I don't ever think like yeah. I, I always think they're too expensive. The two I've bought, <laughs> <laughs> and and you then, carry you carry the resentment around with you <laughs> a little bit. But 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 it turned out the other mean. one, the little one that that went crazy over there in Highland Park. It went cra- like when I bought that house, I thought like this is who would pay this much money <laughs> for a, a less than a thousand square feet, <laughs> and like what what little I knew that like yeah. now it's crazy. But 
But I buy places to live there. Those kind of people, a lot of people don't get attached to, to places. Uh, they, exactly. Exactly. You? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you, you know, it's that, it's that moment when a house turns into a home. Yeah. You know, it, it, and it's all to do with, I mean, you know, the, I, good luck. You know, I, when people kind of brag about, you know, how they've made money on houses, that that's fine. And, and I, you know, and I've, I've had good experiences and bad experiences. This is only... This is only the third house that I've actually owned. Right. So you like to live um, places. You're yeah. not thinking like, I'm yeah. going to buy this and I'm going to... You're not thinking when you buy it that you're going to sell it. No. No. I'm, I, I never think of the house as a possible investment yeah. or something that is going to make me money in, in the years to come. You know? Right. It's just... I mean, the house in Hollywood, I was in there for... I was in there since 95. I was there for the best part of 25 years. And you lived in the hills? Yeah, no, we lived. Uh, we, I, <laughs> I, I, we lived in what was told. I was the, the realtor said we were Hollywood Hills adjacent. Oh, so not you know, the hills, not the hills. <laughs> it was like you know, we we saw the hills at the top of my street. It was there was suddenly this precipitous rise. Yeah, yeah, but, where, uh, where those you know, houses were. <laughs> you could see the houses that were in the yeah. hills, and, and and I remember the, the realtor saying, uh, "And you're really close to Sunset Boulevard, and that's where the action is." <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the first action I was aware of w- on my street, it was we moved there when the neighborhood wasn't so yeah. gentrified as it is now. And the set, the third night, I think the third or with, certainly within the first week that we yeah. were there, in bed, one o'clock in the morning, there's some noise outside. I get up, I look out the window, and there's a hooker in our driveway. <laughs> Working? Well, she's making a deal with someone. She's having a little <laughs> argument with some guy. I don't know. They were maybe they were just negotiating the deal. And, uh, <laughs> and my wife said, "What's that?" And I knew. I knew. If I said to her, "There's a hooker in the driveway," she, she'd have packed a bag and gone. Yeah. So I just went, "Oh, kids." <laughs> You know, because I just yeah. I just knew that she wouldn't have borne that. So uh, when but, I bought, but now it's kind of it's, it's, it's kind it's of fancy. smartened up now. When I got my house over in the other place in Highland Park, like within a week, someone had tagged my wall. They'd spray painted, <laughs> and I was like, "Holy shit! I'm, it's already someone else's territory. What? I, what is happening?" Yeah. And uh, but it leveled off. But you yeah. you grew up. You were in England most of your life. No? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't I didn't come to I didn't come to uh, the states until I was in my forties. Really? Yeah, yeah. So where'd you like? What was uh, where'd you grow up in England? I don't I know. Up, my- I grew up in London. I was I uh, my my just quick my background is basically my parents were my father was spanish my mother was italian they what, were, what did he do my father was a waiter yeah and uh my mother cleaned hotel rooms she was, she a, was italian a, like italian 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 not italian american <laughs> I, I i did an interview once and someone and i said so i said oh, and your mother was uh your mother was italian and i and i said yeah she's Ita- she was italian and the interviewer said uh from uh, new york <laughs> Brooklyn? I said, no, no, Italy. <laughs> She's not Italian-American. And your dad was Spanish? Yeah. From, from Spain? Ma- from Spain. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Madrid. Really? Yeah, just outside Madrid. Either. I've been there. I've, I was in... Uh, oh, no, I haven't. I was in Barcelona. Do you now... Make so, your mind up, Mark. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to seem international. <laughs> I spent a week in Italy, and I was in Barcelona briefly. <laughs> I, I don't know how to speak Spanish or Italian, but I, I've walked through the areas. But, but uh, so did you? Were you? Did you grow up with the languages? Yeah, yeah. My uh, my parents, my parents, kind of both of them. They they had finished their formal education by the time they were like fifteen, sixteen. My dad was a uh, worked as a laborer in Spain before he kind of joined up with some trade union militia and. 
he was he was an, he was a refugee from the civil war in Spain. Oh, really? And he arrived in England uh, just in time for World War Two. Oh man! So he couldn't go back to Spain. So he uh, he he just signed up. He signed up to the British Army. So after the revolution in Spain, because he was on the uh, he was at, he he were, he was in a trade union militia. He was on the Republican side. He was fighting at, 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 at fighting Franco. Uh huh. And they they got pushed out. Yeah, the, uh, there was uh, a lot of uh, a lot of refugees um, who were political refugees. They they went um, a lot of them joined the refugee trail into France. Yeah. And uh, from there, they kind of scattered around the world, really. Uh, many went to South America, Latin America. My dad went to France. Um, it's here where the family history gets a bit murky. Yeah. He spent some time in France, certainly enough time to learn how to speak French. Yeah. And then he ended up somehow, he ended up in um, in England. Murky, like a well-kept secret murky? Well, murky, like no one, I never quite found out what he was doing. That My mother, I remember my mother once told me, oh, yeah, yeah, your, your father was in the Foreign Legion. And yeah. and I think that sounds a bit fanciful to me. Right. I, I, you know, because I think... From what I know, the Foreign Legion, once you're in, it's really, really hard. To, you can't just pop in for a few months and kind of go, you know, guys, I'm good. <laughs> uh, and I, and uh, so anyway, he, he arrived in England in uh, top of 39, 1939. My mother emigrated from Italy after the war. She arrived in England in 1947. And she, she got a job uh, as a chambermaid in a hotel where my dad was working in the restaurant as a waiter. Oh. And that's where they met. So they'd pass each other in the hallway. And, I guess. Yeah. Know, as they were changing into their outfits. And, and that he uh, stayed in that in that job his whole life. His whole life. Yeah. He was he was a waiter, bartender, um he was a, a he was a restaurant manager for a while. Um, it's and- a certain deal in in England, I guess. When you you know when you you have your your health care covered, and also there is some there is a union to to it too, isn't there? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, yeah, I mean, this was this was just I mean, just after the war, uh, it was really the beginning of what became known as the welfare state. Uh huh. You know where you had uh, universal health care, you uh, a free education, um, all of that stuff. And I mean, I I. I think I may be part of the last generation in England who I got educated from the age of five to 25 and I didn't pay a penny. And it was a good education. And it was a good education. I went to a good, I went to good schools, uh, parochial schools. They were Catholic schools. Yeah. And I went to drama school. I got, I got my degree at drama school and, you know, and that was it. I mean, and, they were, I mean, all I had to, all I had to find was like my pocket money, you know, right. but, but all my tuition, all my school expenses were all covered. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. There, and there was no shame in the working class then. Not at all. There was yeah. a great, there was, in fact, if, it's quite the opposite. There was yeah. a great deal of pride. You know, there was a movement after the war there was a movement where uh, the working class had had a kind of profile and, and people were, you know, it was clear that there was many, many talented people in the working class and, and all that they were lacking, they weren't lacking the skills or yes. the talent or the ability. What they were lacking was the opportunity. Right. And that was given to them by uh, successive governments after after World War Two. But it's always, it strikes me like in, in growing up in England that you do, there is sort of a, a, a class system. Oh, completely. And yeah. like, it, it, they, no one talks about it here. You but, know? Yeah, but it, it, there's a class system here too oh absolutely but i think i think i think the difference between the systems in a way is that here it's 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 a meritocracy here i mean and and also it's it's all about it's all about how you (laughs) it's all about whether you have money it's it's a meritocracy and but it's also what what the merit could be is just your ability (laughs) to bullshit and hustle 
So it's, it's and not, make money. Yeah. And yeah. make money. Right. I mean, that's you know, a, if yeah. you can make money, then then it doesn't it, seemingly at, at this point, especially with this president, it doesn't it doesn't fucking matter how. Yeah. I tell you, here's here's the thing. Here's the, here's the difference that I've, I this is my theory. Yeah. When you talk to an American, mm-hmm. when you're talking to someone from America, like you, me, yeah, you hear the accent, right? Now, all I can tell from your accent yeah. is I can maybe have a vague guess at where you might be from, hmm. but your accent doesn't give me any information about your education, Mm-mm. your your financial status, yeah. uh, how you were raised, or anything right. like that. When you talk to a Brit, yeah. all that information is in there, in, in their accent. In seconds. You can kind of tell, you know, yeah. you, you, he's middle class, he's working class, he's upper class, he's had an education, she hasn't. Yeah. You know, you can, there's all that, and it's all subtle, it's all subliminal, but all that info is there. And as Brits, we kind of, we respond to it and act on it. Yeah. You know, so someone comes in, I remember being, when I was a student, constantly being told about you know you've got to you've got to neutralize your accent other my first my first agent actually said to me you really got to calm down with the london accent because otherwise you're going to be playing spanish waiters all your life because <laughs> my name was alfredo yeah you know and he was saying drop the o or change it and I, but i mean now it was that like it was that obvious like yeah. london was a bad oh, accent yeah. what was the preferable well, accent? It was like, when, I, when i went to drama school my accent was a lot more kind of a lot rougher than it is now i mean i i I sweetened it up, you know, because I took his advice. This was 1971. But how do you, and then it just sticks, or you are are you putting on an effort now? No, no, no. This is now how I talk. But but I think that's that's after years and years of, you know, kind of like what did you used to sound like? Well, it was all sort of bit like that, you know, a bit kind of thrown back in the mouth, yeah, a bit kind of you know, oh hello, hello, Mark, you know, all right. And but of course now when I do it, it does feel to me affected. Yeah, when you do your old accent. Yeah, but when I well, at the time it was just the way. I mean, every now and again, my 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 uh, my daughter said to me once, she said, "Dad, when you get, so I can really hear the London when you get angry." Oh, there it you comes. Know? Yeah, because it suddenly it's kind of yeah. you know, suddenly it goes from uh, you know it goes from this to kind of like I fucking told you. <laughs> <laughs> many more times <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting that's what well, it comes out then, it's, it's still makes, in there it makes sense because we all you know at those moments of high emotion we always betray ourselves you know? right or, or or you betray yourselves but no but you're, you're probably being more honest on some level hmm yeah, that too, that <laughs> you too. know, like then that's when people go, "That's who you yeah, are." That's the real that's Fred you. Molina. Yeah. I see it now, <laughs> you faker. <laughs> but so, what was the education? Where did you go to drama school? I, I went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, or uh, as it was known then, the Guildhall School of Screech and Trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we and it was a very good education. You know, it was it was a kind of classical education. It was, uh, you know, this was the very early seventies. But did you do? Were you doing it in in high school or whatever you? Call oh yeah, it? yeah. When I when I was at high, yeah, our version of high was secondary yeah. school. Yeah, I went to a, a Roman Catholic secondary school for boys. Were you very Catholic? No, no. My parents sent me there just in case. In case what yeah, there was a God, just in case there was a God. <laughs> you know, my my parents my parents were not what I call kind of. They were like part-time Catholics, you know. Well, Spanish and Spain and Italy, those are big yeah. Catholic strongholds. I mean, they were, they were raised. They were raised Catholic. Yeah. But they weren't practicing. Right. In fact, in fact, if anything, my father was actually very anti-clerical. Yeah. He had some experiences during the Civil War that kind of really kind of turned him off the church. Catholic and, fascists. Yeah. yeah the, all the Catholic fascists. Yeah. And uh, and my mother was just you know so they sent me to a Catholic. I, mean, I, I was I was baptized. Right. They sent me to a Catholic school. Right. Uh, 
but that was partly because it was a good school and it was the nearest one to where we lived. Sure, you know, my so. brother went to a Catholic high school and he's a Jew. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my parents' choices weren't quite so stark, but uh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, there was some point where my brother went to like some school and he came home singing a song about you know Jesus loving him, and my parents were a little taken aback. <laughs> Had to sort of set him straight with the vague notion that uh, we don't do the Jesus thing. <laughs> we're not sure what we do but it's not that it's not that's right that's right, that's right. i remember i remember coming home from school one day i mean i was i was this was primary school yeah i must have i was younger than 10 certainly i remember coming home and telling my dad that one of the priests or one of the nuns at school had told me off because um i hadn't gone to i'd, I'd said that I, we didn't go to mass yeah and the nun had said something like, well, you know, you're going, to, you know, there's a good chance that, you know, people who don't go to mass will go to hell. Yeah. Something like that. And I told my dad and he hit the roof. He was so, he was so, I'm not, I'd never, I'd never seen my dad. It was scary, actually. He was like screaming and shouting in Italian, Spanish. And, and he went down to the school. <laughs> he went down to the school yeah. uh, the next day and he kind of just was screaming at the headmistress and just you know and after that i was what was the what was he screaming about well it, it, he was just basically just saying you know don't talk to my son this way terrorize say the these kid. things to my kid yeah. you know sort of uh, I, I i remember he said something about i know about you people i saw i saw things in spain i you know and and uh, he told me this story yeah that he had seen in the in the bowels of some church he had seen uh sort of the bones or the the, the of of babies mm -hmm. and he believed this may, this may well have been just him swallowing you know propaganda yeah but he said that these were the these were the bones of babies who had been born from nuns uh -huh. and how they'd been killed and kept there secretly or you know all this kind of weirdly Oof. wacky stuff but then i and i, and I remember thinking oh come on you know he's, he's probably he's probably exaggerating yeah but then of course you talk to kind of hardline catholics and you kind of know that there's there's all that sh there's all that shit in the background uh, you know there's the, the, layers the, and layers the, of the, yeah and you kind of and you start thinking well maybe yeah, there's just maybe there was a there were elements of truth in that. But anyway, on that day, he was yeah. absolutely furious. But the irony, of course, was that he scared the bejesus out of me because he was so <laughs> angry. But when I went back to school the day after, I was like the hero for a couple of days. You know, yeah, your dad, your dad, your dad told Mary, sister Mary, Kevin, that she was an old asshole. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I was you started like, a revolution. Yeah, I was, I, I was like the cool kid for about yeah, you know, a day. Yeah, you you fought the fight against hell. <laughs> That's right. So. But you were acting then. I uh, no, I didn't start not at ten. But it no, not at ten. But I, I, I know that around that time we used to do this thing in school. It was, I think, it was just a way of filling yeah. the last hour of the of the last of the Friday. We used to do this thing where uh, we would kind of put on little plays, put on little shows, and I just remember doing a little thing, a little skit that I'd worked out with my chum. Yeah. And getting a laugh. Right. And, you know, and I th this is a story you hear a million times from performers, you know. That first the, laugh. The moment. Yeah. That you kind of go, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is this is this is it. This is this is it. Now I had no idea. You know, I, my mother told me once that I was nine years old when I first said, "I want to be an actor," 
But I can't believe for a moment that at that age I had any idea of what it implied or what the, you know, what was involved. Right. You were just I, a showman. I was a show off. Yeah. I, I was a show. Off. And in fact, um, years later, when I was doing, a, <laughs> I was doing my first leading role on Broadway. For which play? Uh, it was a play called Art. Mm. Oh yeah. And uh, and it was a huge success. And and my old drama teacher from high school. Who I'd stayed friends with. This guy was a very, very, very important part of my life, and uh, he came with his with his partner to come and see the show in, in New York, which I was thrilled about. From England, yeah. And I took him and his partner out to dinner with another friend of mine who happened to be in town. And my friend Andy turned around to Martin and, and said, "So, Martin, um, when you were teaching Fred at school, was was he a good actor?" And Martin instantly kind of went, no, he was a dreadful actor, but he was a marvellous show-off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's how I started. I was what, a terrific show-off. What was great? This guy's name was Martin? Martin Corbett. And, yeah. and he just encouraged you? What? Yeah, he, his, uh, his first day at school as a teacher was my first day there as a student. Uh-huh. And he... He was he was he came in as I think he was deputy head of the English department, and the, one of the first things he did was he started a Wednesday night drama club, and he started uh, teaching plays and yeah. putting on plays at the end of each semester. And oh, of course, I was like I was happy as a pig in shit. I mean, I, I thought it was just the most fantastic thing. I lived for those Wednesday nights. Is it? It's weird how like that one guy or that one teacher in high school can change your whole life. Uh, he did. I he was the first adult apart from my mother, who I sort of confided in and said, I, you know, I want to be an actor. And he this is what Martin basically said, Okay, I'll do whatever I can to help you, but the minute you drop the ball, I'm washing my hands of you. What does that mean? Basically what he meant was if you're serious I'll be serious and I'll help you but in high school. Yeah, but if you're being, but if you, you know, if you're being flippant or you don't, or you don't put 100 percent effort into this, I don't want anything to do with you. Wow, he and, really, yeah, he, and, and I was like a little, I was a little taken aback by that, by that approach. But actually, I really appreciate it because he gave me reading lists, he gave me things to look at, he 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 suggested plays I should read, movies I should see. Really, like yeah. what? Well, kind of just just stuff that was appropriate and that would that would help me understand what but being you, an actor was going to be like. But you never would you would never know about them hadn't he told you? Not really. No, yeah. I mean, you know, he's in the, certainly not the plays. He said you need to start if you want to if you're serious about being an actor, you got to start reading plays like he, Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare, Noel Coward, George Bernard Shaw. You know, all that stuff, stuff which in the normal traffic of events probably I wouldn't have been exposed to. Yeah, you need that guy. Yeah, and, and he was he was and he he. Was was uh, he did things like when i auditioned for drama school for instance in my second last year my last year at school uh i had to i got in i got a place at drama school and then i auditioned in front of a board yeah um the local education authority for a grant so i could you know i could afford to go to college yeah and I forgot my lines in the audition, and they turned me down. Oh, so shit. I was heartbroken. I went back to the school. I told Martin what had happened, and he wrote a very impassioned letter to the board saying, please, this young man is talented. Give him another chance. He was nervous. You know, uh, I guarantee you he'll be spot on next time. And, they, and he really fought for me, and, and I got another audition, and I passed, and I got my grant. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Like, what movies did he make you watch? Uh, well, I think it was things like... Um, 
It was. I tell you what. It was. The, 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 I can't remember the title of it now. But there's that wonderful movie with Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier about the escaped convicts. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, in the heat of the night, yeah. he told me to look at. Um, he told me to look at movies like Lawrence of Arabia um, and all these comedies, all the all these Ealing. These were like old movies, yeah. which would 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 turn up on TV. So he said, you know, make an effort, watch these movies. Was it the Defiant ones? Is that's that, it? The yeah, Defiant ones. Right. Yeah. Oh, I can't yeah. believe I remember that. And it, neither can neither can my, I but, my, I'm, but I'm, I'm thankful <laughs> my brain rarely works I just want to make it clear I did that without googling I did that yes I can verify that I'm standing I'm yeah. sitting right did, directly opposite him did not touch my keyboard <laughs> I just remembered that it's a real t- it's, a, it's a rare thing so alright so but like the education like I mean, you've done so many different roles, and you're you're con- like you're constantly working. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, t- touch wood. Uh, that that's been the case. Uh, I'm, I've been very fortunate that way. But like, what was the you know? Because I, I you know I do a little acting myself now, and I know my listeners get tired of me now. Now that now that I'm acting a bit, and whenever I have actors on, I'm like, so what's your, what's your process? <laughs> so, <laughs> but but the education is because I didn't have any of that education. But I mean, you you were classically trained. Yeah. And, and it was, and I, you know, that was the kind of, that was the traditional and accepted and expected uh, journey was to, and, you know, go to drama school and uh, get trained. And then but that was know, what Shakespeare, the classics. Yeah. The, yeah, it was, it, yeah the, the, we didn't, the most contemporary play that we actually worked on in my drama school was written in 1939. Mm. Everything else was before that you know it was all kind of everything we looked at was in the classical canon but that was the way that was the way that uh, drama was taught in those days and i mean what, now it's very different sure but like like in doing that you know what what exactly what paces are you sort of walking through that that stay with you i mean like you know when you're just doing if you're doing shakespeare or you're doing uh, i don't know you're doing greeks too mm-hmm. like you know what 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 does that program in your brain i think what it i think what it gives you is an understanding of the the history of the tradition that you are now joining Uh, right you know and and it's it's a bit like uh you know it's a bit like the old adage about you know breaking the rules is great but you got to know what the rules are first sure sure and i think that's essentially what it is you know you 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 in order to in order to kind of express and 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 kind of break new ground you have to understand how that ground arrived there in the first place right or else you're just uh you're just a cheater and an yeah, idiot you, you, and you, well kind of or you're, or you're you just kind of trusted or or, or or you don't have a context for what you're doing you know it's it's uh you know i remember the first time i heard very kind of out there free form jazz yeah uh cecil taylor sure people like that and i didn't get it at all i'm kind of going what is this it just sounds like people just kind of making noise and then it was a, a friend of mine who was a jazz fan said no no, no. you gotta understand these guys they could play you anything you ask them to play they they've arrived they've they've journeyed here to get here they've they, journeyed to fuck you they, yeah they haven't just <laughs> they haven't just landed and kind of gone hey what's this a saxophone oh, what does this do but this you is know. the 70s you said yeah I was at drama school from 72 to 75 so when you get out I mean is the heyday of experimental uh, British theatre it's a little it's already going it's already oh yeah yeah there was uh, when I when I came out of drama school there was a very healthy alternative theater circuit and a theater scene there were lots of small companies kind of applying for project grants and so on and they were doing some really interesting work there was a big 
explosion in uh, in, in feminist theatre, in, in, in kind of gay theatre, alternative theatre. There was loads of these wonderful disparate voices, people making work, making theatre. Yeah. Sometimes they'd do it in a garage or they'd do it in a small little black box somewhere in the middle of nowhere. They would tour, you know, touring art centres, working class, working men's Did you do social club. Stuff? Yeah, yeah I, I worked with two companies... Uh, one company was called 784 and the other company was called Belt and Braces and we took and we took shows that had a very strong political content and we took them on tour to colleges and and uh, working men's social clubs and stuff like that and what in 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 it, how was the reaction? I mean, were well, these- the reaction was was uh, depending on the quality of the show. Right. The reaction was good. Sometimes it was not so good. Uh, we did a play. Um, uh, we did the, uh, for instance, with Seven Eighty Four. Uh, with sorry, with Belt and Braces, I did the what was then the original British production of a Dario Fo play called Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Oh yeah, I remember that. And that was a that was a hugely kind of successful. We had a very successful tour. It went to the West End eventually, but without me. Uh, and uh, you know it, it was it was a time when there was a lot of public money available for art for art yeah. in all its forms art theater music you know for fine arts there was a there was a generosity within from with state money yeah and that started to shrink once uh, margaret thatcher became prime minister when you know, it all there's always there's always a blossoming of public money for the arts whenever there's a Labour government in power. Yeah. As soon as the Conservatives get back in, it all starts to shrink again. And did you find that in Britain that there there's more of an audience for theatre? There is, very much so, very much so. There, there, there's an audience for theatre, there's an audience for good theatre, certainly, because, you know... Uh, uh, the, the, the British enthusiasm for theatre doesn't mean that they'll just t- they'll take anything. You know, the, right. if, if anything, they're quite they're, they're quite quite fussy. Yeah, you know, it's I remember <laughs> I remember going to the theatre in New York with an English friend of mine, and he said, "I've seen five shows this week, and every single show, there's a standing ovation at the end of the show." And to quite honestly, Fred. One of them deserved it. The other four certainly did not. <laughs> because in England, in London, you know, audiences don't stand up. They, you know, they stand up if it's really exceptional. Here, you, I mean, I think here you get a standing ovation if you turn up. Yeah, if you get through it. If you get through yeah. it, it's like everyone's on their feet <laughs> cheering you. But I guess that's also part of that tradition that you, you know, you sort of learn when you do classical stuff and you do Shakespeare, that there is that it, it all started there. So like yeah. there, there's like, you know, centuries of... Of of what it sort of invented theater yeah, in a yeah. way, and also and and also now that theater's become you know theater, I think somewhere along the way, in the modern era, somebody I don't know who and I don't know when, but somebody somewhere suddenly said, you know what, this can make money. This is right. th- you know this is a this is a good workable business model, and so people like Cameron McIntosh, who was you know a, 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 an independent producer that I worked with, they started putting money into the infrastructure you know they started they started renovating theaters so making the whole experience of going to a theater much more pleasant yeah you know when i was a kid going to the theater was a bit of a challenge because the theaters were a bit grubby right they were run down you know you yeah. couldn't get you couldn't get a drink in the interval you know the the, the ice cream came in these tubs and it, it was weeks old and yeah. warm 
Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't much care. Warm ice cream. Warm ice cream. Kind of <laughs> basically weird. like a thick milkshake. That's really bad. Yeah, it's disgusting. Um, <laughs> but you know, but then but that started to change. So now you know, you go to the theatre now in London and and major cities in England, and it's and it's it's a great night. What what was the big break? I mean, when did did you were you gunning for television? No, work? You were, no, no. You I were going to be a theatre yeah, guy. Yeah, that, that was the thing. In my for my generation, theatre was was always the first entry point for, for, for work um, you didn't even think about like how to get in movies no, movies and TV was something that was way ahead in the future that you had to kind of like work towards right you had to sort of in a way kind of get well known enough or earn earn the chance to do a TV movie or a movie and who are the elders in you know for your generation you know in the in the theater world that everybody looked up to oh and- it was I mean it was people like you know Glenda Jackson, yeah, uh, Trevor Nunn. Yeah, you know, we had we had some great actors, uh, you know, uh, Donald Sinden, um, uh, Peter O'Toole. Yeah, uh, you know, there were some. There were great. There, there were actors who were like maybe ten, fifteen, twenty years ahead of us. Yeah, who were doing great work, and that was what we aspired to. And and the idea of getting into the National Theatre or getting into the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, working with you know really good provincial companies like the Bristol Old Vic or the Exchange Theatre in Manchester and so on. That was what you aimed for. Yeah. Um, but it was always theatre because that's all we were trained in. I mean, there was no... when, I, when At my drama school, the, 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 the most technological class was a class that was rather vaguely called radio, microphone technique. <laughs> yeah. And that was it. There was no. There were no classes about screen work or how to how to audition for camera. And but stuff. at that time, that. not unlike I guess the thing you're doing now, this uh, the Angel of Vine yeah. uh, podcast, that like the BBC had radio plays. Oh I yeah, mean, and, so and, in fact, was... and in fact, in those days, I don't. They may still do it. The BBC had a repertory company. Yeah, and uh, the, the BBC Radio Rep, and every drama school was invited to enter a competition, and so. Every drama school uh, would would bring would would send maybe two, or sometimes three of their you know best students to enter this competition. Yeah, and you would basically audition for the BBC Radio Rep, and if you won, the prize was a six month contract with the BBC Radio Rep. Now that was like, I mean, that was serious. Yeah. that meant that if you if you won this, yeah, you'd leave drama school and you'd be in a job. You'd have a job, a paid yeah. job for six months. Talking. You know, and it was yeah. like that was. And so we all went. We all went and did it. We all kind of tried to do that. Did you win? You know? No, I like. I did one. I did a radio show for the BBC in one of their old hall. Like they have like those. Po- even the BBC in that building. You know, I'm in this room that has an audience in it, and it it, it has its own history. You're yeah. like a lot of shit happening here. Yeah, you, you yeah. know, there's like a, a tra- not a tradition, but. It's it's all in one place. There's very few places like that here where you know that that's where it all happens. That we, when you have a national radio, mm-hmm. you, you know the 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 studios are are historical. That's right. That's right. And so and, much and, has gone on. Yeah. There. And you, you, I remember the very first time I worked at the BBC to do a radio job. Um, I was told that the the uh, the studio we were in was where uh, some really famous science fiction series from the 40s 
um, had been transmitted yeah. when it was live. And you would find all these sort of old actors who were radio stars who did almost nothing but radio. Um, and they'd be full of little hints like, you know, dear boy, uh, when you turn the pages of your script, just hold it away from the microphone. Yeah. And uh, perhaps try and try and um, try and uh, uh, fold up the ends of the pages so you've got something to grab. Just a little hint. <laughs> and they'd give you all these little... And of course, at the time, I was young. I, you know, I loved all those old guys. Those old guys were... I look, you looked up to them. They were the elders. They, they, were the, they were the actors that had been through what you were going through, had, been, had experienced what you were hoping to experience. And, and, what they, and their knowledge, their understanding, even their cynicism about it was, was useful. And also, there was a, a, it sounds like in, in Britain, there was a working class element to that. Oh, very much so. Yeah, very like these much guys, so. you know, they had jobs for a yeah. lifetime. It was yeah. Piro Tool and Albert Finney's generation. Yeah. They went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and they just kicked the shit out of that place. I mean, you know, they, they were the ones that were kind of going, no, I'm not going to change my accent. You don't like my accent? Don't talk to me. You know, the, 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 they, they, had the, they had the guts to kind of just challenge all that. Did you get to work with either of those I guys? got to work. Um, no, I didn't. I, I got to be, I became sort of friendly for a while with uh, Albert Finney because we had a couple of mutual friends. Yeah. Um, I never got to work with any of those old guys, but they were, they were the people we were kind of they were the people we adored, you know, because the, 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 they, they, they seemed to, they walked the walk and talked the talk, sure. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and they, they lived the life. They did, very much so, <laughs> very much so. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of lessons from that that you might want to avoid. That's right. You, you, <laughs> I, I worked with a, I worked with a, a, a wonderful old actor called Sebastian Shaw, who was a, a, a great character actor and leading man at the Royal Shakespeare Company when I was there just kind of spear, yeah. spear carrying. Yeah. And the is way, that, you know, the way young, is that what it's called? Spear, spear carrier? Yeah, I was a spear carrier, yeah, <laughs> and lantern bearer. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, uh, you know, like, like like a lot of young actors, you know, you, when, you, when you're talking to older actors, you, you want to know, so you want to, yeah. and I, I think I said to Mr. Shaw, I think I said something like, um, uh, Mr. Shaw, do you, do you have any, any advice yeah. for me? I, you know, and I was kind of a bit gushy and, and he said, uh, yes, I have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he said, he says, I'll give you some advice. He said, <laughs> he said, never stand when you can sit and never sit if you can lie down. <laughs> and at the time, I thought, oh, he's just a he's just an old fart. You know, yeah. just, you know, but now that I'm in my 60s myself, I'm thinking that's really good advice. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Mr. Shaw. It's practical. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so so when does the what how does the big the big break reveal itself? Or I mean, in terms of when did you start working? Well, I I, I, I was always working. Uh, not always doing what I wanted to do, or not always doing necessarily what what was the best thing to do. But but, but you I, seem but that's just part of your work ethic. Yeah, seems. I just yeah. I mean, I just, I just uh, you know, I grew up with I grew up in a family that really lived paycheck to paycheck. Was your dad on board with the acting? Not really. No, not really. He thought he 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 was a little. Um, he was a bit bemused by it, and then I think he became slightly irritated by it. <laughs> And then he just dismissed it, you know, because it, it, it wasn't, it didn't seem to be of any consequence. Did he him, see, you know? he didn't get to see any of your he success? He got to see a few things. He got to see a few things. I mean, he was, he was, he, but he, I don't know, something about, he never quite was able to express any pride or any enjoyment of what I did. There was always a caveat. There was always, it was always kind of like almost begrudgingly acknowledging what I was doing but then of course 
after he died, I discovered that the, he had a suitcase, like a big bag. Of and clipping. it was full of clippings and posters and articles and photographs. You know, he just, but he couldn't actually, you know, I remember the lo- one of the last things he saw before he passed away. Uh, he, I did a play where in the second half of the play, my character is in full drag. Yeah. Because he's, that's his, that's his job in this he, he's a, he's in a gang of and and there's and that's his that's his job in the heist is to kind of like you know deflect attention right so he's in full drag on a street corner pretending to be uh, a lady of the night and my father comes to see the show and afterwards he says he says to me he says alfredo it was it was incredible when you when you dress up as a woman you look just like your mother and I was thrilled by this, and I kind of went, oh, did you think I was attractive? And he goes, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was the best, that was the closest I got to a compliment was I, when I was in drag, I looked like my mum. <laughs> Why is it with that, there's, what is it with fathers in that thing? Like, what, I mean, what is the obstacle? Well, I've, I think, I, I'm not, I don't know, I can, only sp- I can only speak from my own experience. I don't know, there's, I'm sure there's a million and one reasons why fathers do that with their they sons. They can't be, they can't express their, yeah. their pride. I, 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 think, I think with my dad, it was because I think what I was doing, what I was, the way I was living my life, you know, what was important to me, he just could not understand. I mean, he got me a job just after, oh, just after drama school, he got me a job in the restaurant where he was working. Yeah, he was bartending by this time. He was bartending in this restaurant, and he got me a job as a as a waiter. And if I say so myself, I was I was quite good at it, good enough that my manager asked me if I'd be interested in going on a paid two week course, which the restaurant would pay for to train as an assistant manager. Yeah. Now if waiting tables or waiting and if working in the catering business had been my ambition that would have been like a great thing to do yeah but i turned it down because i wanted to i didn't want to i I, want stuck yeah i wanted to i wanted time to go to auditions and stuff and when i told my dad that i turned it down his disappointment was palpable yeah and he was but i don't think he was disappointed for me i think he was just embarrassed you know, because he, he it made it, I think he thought that it made him look as if he hadn't raised me properly. Right. Well, also or there somehow something like that, you know, they, they and then question- when I left that job and took an acting job, which was paying me something like a third of what I was earning as a waiter. He he could barely that was it. He could barely talk to me. Yeah. He just didn't understand your choices. Didn't get it. So what was Oklahoma the first big thing? That was the first big uh, that was the first big um, sort of stage production that I got involved in, yeah. And that was the one that kind of got me a little bit of attention. And, and, and what, that was like in the 80s? That was nine, yeah, that was round about, yeah, because it, it was round about when my daughter was born. So it would have been like, yeah, 1980, 81. So it, that was, what, it, what it's like, I don't know anything about the production, but I know it got a lot of uh, attention and mm-hmm. it was a revival of. It of, was the first major revival of the musical since like the 1950s. Isn't it, it's sort of odd that it got so much attention. What, what was it about that well, production? I, well, I think it's because it was very popular. The show's very popular, and it was the first time. A whole, I mean, it hadn't been there hadn't been a production of Oklahoma for 
nearly I, you know, nearly 30 years it was like so, like some sort of unearthing like yes it was like a it was like a big deal and we took it on tour first and then we came into the west end um so yeah it was and also we had a great this young australian singer uh, john dietrich who was absolutely brilliant in the role of uh-huh. curly um and it was a it was a yeah it was kind of a big deal it ran for a year and a half i did i did I did like ten months in it. I wonder what the like what what the appeal was because it, it, it was I guess it, it, in terms of I guess it's Britain and Oklahoma is a very specifically yeah. American. But it was so. a huge but it was a huge success when it first came over to England, uh, and you know and, and and there's always been a great what in the 30s you mean or whenever oh, uh, well yeah when it came over it came over in the late 40s yeah. I believe. And I think that was the last time we'd seen a production of it in the West End. I don't, I don't know the show, but like it just it, musicals are this a whole other they're their yeah. own thing. Well, ev- every every number in the show was a hit. Yeah. Um, over the years, every number in the show had either been released as a single or had been part of famous singers' repertoires. So all the all the numbers were right. a hit. My character, I played Judd Fry, you know, the bad guy. He has one song. In the original musical, yeah. which was cut from the movie, so <laughs> every night when I went on stage, every other song, as soon as it, people were singing the, along, the, yeah, well, they were either singing along or as they heard the opening bars, there was a kind of a round of polite applause, right, right. you know. Oh, what a beautiful, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm just a girl who, <laughs> and then of course I come on and my song starts, dung, dung. It's very dark, you know. The floor creaks, the door squeaks. You know, <laughs> there's a mouse a nibbling on a broom. It's all very kind of dark and you know <laughs> yeah. paranoid. And of course, when when that starts, I could see the whole audience kind of turning their heads, kind of going, "I don't know this one. What's, what's this song? I've never heard this song." And <laughs> so, so, and every other song in the show got like cheers at the end. You know, yeah. people will say we're in love. The place goes mad. Yeah. I end up with my in my long. Only room, nothing. <laughs> Tumble, tumbleweeds. <laughs> but you so stood was, out. I stood out. It was it was a it was a real kind of learning experience. And that started the <laughs> and that started the theater role. Yeah, well, yeah, kind of. And then and then it was just after that that I did uh, that did my first movie. And then that, which movie know, was that? That was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've really done your research, Mark. Yeah. I'm really impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Raiders but, uh, of the Lost Ark. I don't know. Sometimes I talk to people from... You, you know, and you've we, never heard of them. Wiki, <laughs> Wikipedia is not always great. IMDb is good. But but sometimes I talk to people. It's like, well, I did this little movie that you you can't find on there. Yeah. yeah. But, but no, that was the a big... The Matrix. Yeah. No, that's a big movie. I remember yeah. you, you're the guy with the spikes coming that's, out of you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's yeah, that, right. It was very disturbing. I, my producer, it's, I think it scarred him for life. He's like, <laughs> he, like, he, like for, he said... My for, work here is done. For most of his life, you were that guy because he yeah. was a kid it yeah. was like that's the yeah, guy yeah, yeah. who was oh my god yeah that's well, right so you get booked out of uh, out of uh, out of england for we a did, yeah because in those days shooting uh, the, the the studio system in england was very economically depressed at the time you yeah know, the studios were empty people weren't shooting there you know the, the the british film industry was going through one of its cyclical downturns See, um, I might want to add real quick that here on this particular resume, it says that there was a movie before that, and that you know, and what was you, that? It was a Nightingale sang in Berkeley Square. That's erroneous. See, that's why I I, I played stupid. That's erroneous. That that I I've never done a movie call. I, I don't know what that is. I've got a feeling it says you're uncredited, and it's a port official. N- 
Oh, I know what. No, 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 no. I've got a feeling someone's got. I think that was the title of an episode of a TV show I did. Ah. I th- See, I Wikipedia, think. you can't yeah, count You can't on trust it. them. You can't trust them. So the, so the film industry is very depressed. It was very depressed. And so it was very cheap to shoot in England. Yeah. So basically what Paramount did is that they, they brought their whole production office over to England. They had, they'd already cast Harrison Ford and, yeah. and Karen Allen from the States. But every other actor in the, in the movie was cast in London. As a consequence, we were all working under British equity contracts, which did not include any residual payments. Really? No. So we all got paid like a lump sum. Was that, that a was plan? That, no, that's just the way it was. Yeah. We, 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 didn't, we never had a residual system in English film contracts. You just got paid your fee, and if you were a star, you'd negotiate a big fat fee, and that was it. That's what really? you got. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, it's, it, I think it's slightly changed now, but certainly in those days. So it, we were cheap. Yeah. We were very cheap. And uh, but so, also very grateful. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and then you were you were doing British television as well. Yeah, I did a little bit of TV, but still, even after even after the the the, the movie, I was still you know regularly working in the theatre and regional theatre and in London. I mean, it, it was it was just an on the the films really didn't become my main stay of employment until I came to live in the states. And but it, but, it, but you were for years you were sort of like one of those guys like there's that guy again. Oh yeah yeah yeah. I, I was like yeah. I I I suddenly was on that track of you know the character actor. Right. You know? Oh you're, yeah yeah. What's isn't that isn't that what's his name? You know yeah yeah. Which is which I've never complained about. I mean that that it's, it's a better way to be. It's a better well, way to work. Yeah, that life got. To, you know, put two kids through college. I'm, I'm, I have no complaints. And, and you don't have the pressure of like, you know, you got to be, you know. That's right. I mean, you know, there's a great, there's a great. I've, I've told this story often, but there's a great quote of uh, the late uh, Bob Hoskins, um, who, who said that uh, he loved popping in and out of movies, you know, doing little cameo parts. Yeah. And the reason he loved it so much, he said, he said, when you turn up, they're happy to see you. They treat you like the crown jewels. And if the movie sucks, nobody blames you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, and it's perfect. Yeah, it's but what, but uh, but then you had big like prick up your ears. That was a big move. That was yeah, a big part. Yeah. yeah, that was a nice. That was a that was a nice big lead in a in a in a in a vet. What was then a very prestigious, very it, that was a movie that very much kind of pushed the envelope socially and politically. You know, um, it was the first time that we saw. Uh, a, a gay relationship, albeit a destructive one, but a gay relationship portrayed uh, as as a relationship and not as some kind of you know secretive criminal uh, you know kind of endeavor. You know, it, yeah. it, it was it was uh, it was the opening up of a whole new way of telling a story. You know, and, and of course it was based on true events and everything. So it, it was quite it, that was quite an important moment and such a disturbing character. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. very much so. I mean, it was that was the first time that I actually spent a lot of time before shooting actively researching the role and the history of these two characters. You know, Gary Oldman and I, um, we'd been friends and, you know, we'd, we'd done a, a play together and uh, and we we spent three or four weeks just every day together just kind of working out these timelines yeah. of, you know, where, where, where these characters were at, at at any particular moment. So when we arrived to shoot the movie... We kind of felt very much at home with with the characters and with the events of the story and so on, and uh, and that really t- that taught me a great lesson. You know, and and that's something that I've continued to do whenever I've worked on, particularly when I've worked on films where I'm playing a character who actually existed at some point. 
Well, that and, and I would imagine too, like because you did do, uh, you played Mark Rothko in Red, yeah, and that he was a complicated character, very much so, yeah. And and interesting, the the uh, the more complicated they are, the more contradictory the information you get, the more interesting it is to play. What do you mean, well, yeah, contradictory? Well, in the sense that um, uh, there used to be an exercise at drama school that we used to do. Where yeah, you would write down a list of all the things that your character says about himself. And then you write a list of all the things that the other characters say about your character. Right. And the best writing is often when those when those things comp, uh, contra- contradict each other. Yeah. You know, if a character says, "Oh, I'm just an ordinary person." Right. You know, I'm just you know, and then someone else says, "Oh my God, when, you know, I saw him the other day. He was drunk and dancing on a table." Yeah. You know that kind of contradiction. You think, "Oh, there's some there's some interesting uh, stuff to work right, on." There, right. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Because in real life, we're all contradictory. We all sure. we're constantly contradicting yeah. ourselves. Uh, and so that was, you know, uh, so when when th- with Mark Rothko, you know, I read all the stuff that he'd written about his work. Uh, I read, you know, I, I read the the the, the um, uh, was it Breslin biography? Bre- yeah, the, the, the Breslin uh, biography, which is absolutely definitive. Yeah. Plus, uh, Christopher Rothko, um, uh, Mark, uh, Mark Rothko's son, Christopher, has written a fantastic book, which is a kind of analysis of his dad's work and 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 where his dad was at in his life at any particular time. So all of that stuff was very, very useful and very helpful. But ultimately, the last thing an audience is paying for is to watch an actor schlep his <laughs> his homework on stage with him. You know, yeah. So you have to integrate it somehow. Yeah. You, what you what you do is what at least what I do is you you absorb as much of it as that is useful, and then forget it. Yeah. Because ultimately, all you're doing is really create recreating what's on the page. Right. You know, you can't suddenly decide to rewrite something because you happen to know what he had for breakfast in 1959 but you believe you know, that it goes in there and I think yeah I think lodges it's, itself it, yeah it becomes part of your I don't know I'm gonna sound terribly highfalutin now but it, it becomes part of your creative DNA right in some way right and 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 that's something you you've done now you do it all the time yeah and it becomes it becomes kind of second nature in a way you know I mean of course when you if you're playing a purely fictional character then of course you know it's just your imagination that's uh you just need your you just need your imagination sure yeah. so like if, so you're going back and forth to from england to the states but the the, the play art brings you to new york and you stay yeah. in new york yeah and I, but i was already i was already living in in the states when i did uh, art but then yeah. I, but that but that was the first time that i'd worked for a long period of time in new york and, and that I, was a I, huge show who's that yeah. who's in that garber uh, like, i did it with victor garber yeah. and alan alder yeah, yeah great great company we, we we became we all became good friends and we've remained so alan alder is a good guy oh fantastic i mean and he was like he was like our dad yeah in a way he kind of he sort of took victor and i under his wing and and there's a wonderful moment when uh alan was always very very keen on you know on like finding a new restaurant you know and he was he loves food and he, he was always very excited to find a, a new place and he came into work one night and said guys there's a great new Italian restaurant. It's uh, you know, uh, and he mentioned the name of the chef. Yeah. He said they've just opened downtown. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna get my uh, I'm gonna get my assistant. And he gave a name. He said, I'm, I'm gonna get my assistant so and so to do it. And I said, oh, I thought so and so was your assistant. And yeah. Alan said, well, I've got two assistants, yeah. one here and one in the office. I went, oh. <laughs> and then I said something like, wow, Alan, that must cost you a fortune. And Alan very quickly said, I've got a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> I loved how he was just. And what? How? What? How do like? Because like, I, you've done a lot of movies. Some of them I've seen. 
<laughs> some of them I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> like some of them I forgot I saw. <laughs> but like, but you work with uh, like how much? Uh, uh, like when you work with somebody like uh, Jim Jarmusch. Yeah. Like how I I'm trying to remember how how big the part in Dead Man was. It wasn't very big. It was basically one scene. We I had one scene in the kind of trading post. Where yeah, Johnny Depp and Gary Farmer come in. You know. Yeah. And, and there's this kind of uh, you know negotiation which gets very tense. Um, uh, and that was the only time I I I went up to we, that he was shooting it in somewhere in Oregon, and I went up there for a week and I was there for three or four days not doing much and then we shot all that stuff in in like one day. And then uh, a few years later, uh, Jim called me. And, and in the and in the interim, I'd worked with Sarah Driver, Jim's partner, um, and I'd done a film with her in Germany. Which one was that? It was called When Pigs Fly. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, um, starring Marianne Faithful. Oh which, wow! Uh, that was, a, that she, that was she's an interesting woman, really interesting. Yeah, I used to see her. I worked at a coffee shop in Harvard Square when she was drying out at some point in. Uh, I guess in the late 80s, and she used to come in every day, and she looked uh, yeah. weathered. Yeah, but an amazing woman. I mean, yeah, really she's kind of great. So many stories, so yeah. much. Anyway, so, and then after that, uh, Jim ca called me up about um, coffee and cigarettes, and yeah. he'd been, you know, he'd been making these little vignettes for years, trying to find a way of somehow putting them together, and he just said, I've got this idea for a, a little short. Would you be interested? And it was myself and Steve Coogan, and, and I said yes straight away, because... You know, I'm a big fan of Steve Cooper. He was just here. Oh, cool guy. Really fantastic. And Jim just basically said that he didn't have a script. He just had an idea for a scene. Yeah. And so we, we improvised a lot of it. Yeah. And, was and it fun? A lot of fun. And we didn't improvise in front of the camera. We, we, we worked it all out the day before in a rehearsal. But, yeah. So we had, an, we had a pretty good idea of where we were going to go with it. Yeah. But I'd never worked that way before. I'd never, I'd never done a movie or, any, or, or worked on a film where there was so much freedom to just kind of invent stuff and just kind of, you know and that that was really exciting have you that, done more of that since no not not no i haven't it's funny i, I that it kind of it was like uh, the most it was like finding the most delicious dish in yeah. a buffet yeah and just thinking you know what i'm just gonna have that now <laughs> and then then you go to another buffet and, it's, and there's nothing it's not like the it's not there i think you and you and coogan should work more together well we had fun i mean i at least i mean i hope i hope i hope steve's memory of that film is as fond as as mine is but i mean i i remember i remember for instance we did this whole uh we got into this whole riff about his coat yeah which was a conversation that we'd had literally a couple of hours before in the lunch break. Yeah. When I'd said something like, that's a really nice coat. And he went, yeah, it's a Vivian Westwood. I said, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. And then, so I, and so in the scene, I just kind of went, a nice coat. And then he went, and then he just went off on this whole thing. It was brilliant. I thought this was such a great way to work. It's I loved fun, it. right? Yeah. I loved in the it. moment. I loved it. It's hard to get in the moment. So, like, I just read, the weird thing is we could spend a, a long time with the, with a lot of the stuff in the in the in the resume because he's done so much but there were, i just read an article recently like two days three days ago about your scene in boogie nights like it wow. was, yeah it was like a new yorker scene someone sort of like how does it hold up and you know and there's a reference to that scene and i'm i have to assume that no matter what you do a lot of people are never going to forget that oh yeah that comes up a lot and i'm delighted you know there's there's uh that i've never i you know i've I, I've never understood it when actors kind of get a little irritated when people kind of mention yeah. 
iconic stuff that they've done right you know you know you you hear actors kind of saying things like oh i wish i would i wish i'd stop talking about that movie i did you know that never bothers me because it's those moments that you know in a small way i mean i may be it may be a footnote in the history of film but it's it's there yeah you know and it exists and and i'm very very proud of very proud of those things you know like when you know people come up i mean people still say i mean usually men of a certain age yeah will say things like you know i'll be in a bar or something or in a restaurant or in a line in the coffee shop and someone will come up and say ah, throw me the idol i'll throw you the whip huh that's you right and i'll say yeah and that was me and and then they always say then they always apologize they always say yeah you must you must get you must hate that when people do that yeah and i always say no no i don't hate it i'm delighted i'm delighted that you remembered it i'm delighted that it's part of your kind of you know memory of of things nice things that's i'm 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 delighted but that's also the great thing about you know going back to bob hoskins talk is that when you have those moments where where you're not the whole movie, yeah. but you can really be in that moment. Uh, that those are the ones that people really remember. You That's know, right. you and the boulder. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy with the billing you've given me. By the way, <laughs> I came before the boulder. So I'm delighted. But, no, that, but you're right. I mean, it's and it's not. It's not. I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be embarrassed by. You know, and and, when, and then you know, other people might talk about boogie nights or or, or and it's I, I'm. It delights me. It, it, I'm, I'm, I'm. I find it flattering, and that they remember. And I'm delighted that it's that it's a, a positive memory. You know, for, and it's a great people. movie. But would they? Like, he did the most wonderful thing. Right. TT. He did the most wonderful thing when Boogie Nights was released. Yeah, he went to the trouble of calling every single person that was involved in that film to thank them for their contribution to it. And I don't just mean the actors. I mean crew. You know, people who weren't on screen. He, he. You know, th- that movie was a huge thing for him, and he, he, he just called everyone. I, I, I thought that was such a classy thing to do. How now? Thinking back on on that scene, I mean, like in terms of how you put together a character. You, you know, what was that work? Well, the. Uh, uh, the the story goes. I'm not sure. I've ne- I've never been able to corroborate this, but the story goes that the part was already cast. Yeah. And the actor who was cast at the very last minute dropped out. Yeah. Um, the story goes that his that this actor's reps got wind that this this movie was about pornography and stuff, and they right. you know, maybe you shouldn't be maybe you shouldn't be associated with it or something. Yeah. And so he dropped out. So I got a call from uh, one of the producers, John Lyons, who, who I knew when he was a casting director. And he said, "Look, I normally wouldn't do this, but you know, we're we're, we're in a bit of a jam. Um, I would we, is, would you be interested in coming playing playing this part? It's only going to be like a couple of days' work. Yeah, turned out to be about three or four days. And I had just come back from a film. I'd been away for a long, long time, so I was really happy to be working in L.A. And I said, sure. And then he said, well, I'll get I'll get Paul to call you. So Paul calls me." And says, okay, this is the part. He's a coked up drug dealer on a shotgun rampage. And I went, yeah, I'll do it. Because <laughs> I was thinking, I've never done that before. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. And then uh, he sent me the script and he explained who this character was, how it was loosely based on this character that actually existed. You Nash. He uh, was based on someone. I think Eric Bogosian yeah, no, yeah, played yeah, him yeah. in another movie. I but, think his name was Nash, yeah. but he was like uh, Armenian or, or Iranian or Israeli. Yeah. Yeah, it and was he, the club owner guy. Yeah, yeah. and, he, and he, was, he was kind of into drugs and porn and stuff. And yeah. So, but I, I thought this is going to be great fun. 
really yeah. fun to do and, and and it was we had a wonderful time i think he played him in the in the john holmes movie the yeah, was it wonderland wonderland yeah, yeah that's it Oof, that's a disturbing movie yeah very much so but uh, but that set must have been crazy that it was thing. and it was and it was a lot of fun because pt was very inventive he the scene with you know the with with the crackers yeah you know firecrackers he, yeah. he he basically uh he told the young man who was playing uh, Cosmo, you yeah. know, the young kid who was like lighting the firecrackers. Yeah. He, the firecrackers were full bore. They were like, you know, they weren't damped down. So, and he said, and he said to this kid, "Just light them any old time. Don't worry about continuity. Just light them whenever you want to." Yeah. Which, of course, the sound man just kind of went nuts, you know, because <laughs> how do you? But right. but he had a, he had a good. Re, he, what he wanted to do is he wanted all the actors except me to be really genuinely. Right. Sort of struck yeah. by them. Yeah. So whenever you had a shot of the three, you know, Thomas Jane, John C. Riley, and Mark Wahlberg on the sofa, and they're jumping yeah. every time they, that was for real because yeah. they didn't know when it was coming. You know, this guy would just light them and just throw them, bang. But in order, and I said, well, how am I? How am I not going to react? Because I'm going to be here. So what they do is they they plug one of my ears were pl- was plugged up, and the other ear had an earwig in it. Yeah. So I couldn't hear anything. All I could hear was dialogue. Right. So for me, every firecracker just sounded like, yeah, very kind of vague, faint in the background right. noise, yeah, which yeah. I didn't react. So they're all jumping out of their skins, and I'm walking through the scene like I can't hear it, like <laughs> oblivious, like in this coke cloud. <laughs> and it was such a brilliant idea. It was yeah. so brilliant, and it because so, of course it created this weird. There was this weird energy in that scene, you know. Yeah, because you're everyone just, else is like freaking out, and I'm just floating through it, like you know, like yeah. like I'm oblivious, singing. which I was. Yeah, it's just singing. Uh, I loved it. I, we had such a good time. It must have been. There was a, a there, was, the, the, there was a John C. Riley did an interview somewhere, and he said, uh, and he was being asked about that scene, and he said, yeah, yeah, we were just we were just sitting on the sofa watching the Alfred Molina show. <laughs> <laughs> Which it kind of was. Yeah. It was a good show. <laughs> and you worked with him again on Magnolia? Yeah, yeah. Had a nice little part in that. That was interesting. And, you know, he's, I, I, love, I love his work. You know, I was, I was a fan. You know, I, I'd seen Hard Eight, you know, his yeah. first movie, which I thought was fantastic. So this was a, you know, I just, I would have, you know, I would have, I said yes even before, you know, even before John finished his first sentence, really. Yeah. And what, like, like when I saw Spider-Man 2, where he played the, the Dr. Octopus. Yeah. Like I like see the thing is is like you bring something sort of like so visceral to like almost anything you do like that 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 guy seemed almost like uh, I mean the way you played it was uh, yeah, like it was almost Shakespearean somehow like it, well that's that's very kind of you but uh, you know it was so like is that a nice way of saying over the top <laughs> right <laughs> but 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 that's good it required that yeah well it, and well it was partly that was that uh, I'm I'm glad that came across because that was partly to do with uh, Sam, Sam Raimi I think what he wanted was something otherworldly somehow he wanted yeah. he, he wanted he wanted his villain to be in the same way that in the first one willem defoe's right. villain in the first in sam's first spider-man movie yeah had this kind of larger than like he had a kind of he had he had a style yeah you know and i think i think sam was 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 into that you know and and so it was uh but that was another again that was another Another amazing experience working in a way that I'd never worked with before. I'd never, I'd never done a movie that was so technically complicated. 
before yeah. you know yeah it was and, and all the the cgi and the animation and the, all the all the technology that was that was employed in that film was at a level that i'd never experienced before and it was exciting it was it was like a real it was like making movies in a whole other way i'd never done before so it was, did you was, but did you have to wear arms yeah well they, they, in some yeah there was a huge rig um that that was operated by puppeteers there was uh, there was another rig that was on cable wow. um there was some some of the, some of the shots were animated and cgi and stuff i mean whenever there were close-ups and i had the arms you know behind me kind of oscillating very very gently that was all because you know the puppeteers were giving it life they were and they were at this is the interesting thing the the puppeteers that were operating the arms yeah were actors themselves Huh. So they were kind of, they they were giving the arms a kind of, I don't know, a, a kind of personality. So each arm had yeah. its own thing going. We, had, we ended up calling them Harry, Larry, Flo and Mo. <laughs> you named the arms. We named the arms Harry, Larry, Flo and Mo. Yeah. You still, are you, do you get excited about every job? I do. Yeah, I do. Because I, I, I think that's yeah. what reads more than anything else. You're not yeah. just I, like, I haven't lost my, I haven't lost my joy of it. And I think it's partly because I'm, you know, I look, I know this is where I might sound a bit sentimental, but I, I, I look at. I look at my family and what they had to do in order to allow me to do this. You know, the, you know that they may not have understood me all the time, but they always, but they made sacrifices on my behalf. Yeah, and uh, so I, I feel I'm, I'm I'm conscious of that, and I'm aware of it, and I'm thankful and grateful for it. And 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 it's given me. They gave me a chance to, in a way, to live a dream. Right. That has become a very nice way to earn a living it's it's given me a lovely life it's given me a, a it's 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 given me the chance to be part of a wonderful community yeah you know so i'm i'm uh, and i love going to i love my you know I, I, I say to people i love my tribe yeah you know i'm proud of them and i'm proud to be part of it the actors yeah anyway anyone anyone who works in, in show business in show business really and you do like it's like it's crazy i mean you do like voices you're on rick and morty you've done a bit on drunk history you yeah. show up like you know you do like you is if you've got a few days you'll go yeah, do it yeah, i'm a bit of a slut that way i mean i'll, I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll, yeah, I, I find it very hard to say no. Yeah, but you know, I've said no in the past, but it's usually when it's really, really bad. But I mean, it's it's uh, luckily I've 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 always managed to find something that I've enjoyed in in the work I've done. And you still, you guys resurrected Red in last year. Yeah, we did it last year because we never did a West End run. We'd done it on Broadway, we'd done it in L.A., we did it in a small theater in like, the Donmar in London, which is officially regarded as the West End, but it's not like a proper yeah. West End house. It's kind of small; it's only two hundred and fifty seats. And and how was it? Good. It went great. Yeah, we did. It, went, it was a big hit. Big how much success. of it was still in your head? Not a lot of it, actually, to be honest, because it had been a good eight nine years since yeah. we'd done it before, but. Once I started working on it and relearning, and you know, it, it big chunks of it were coming. Yeah, so it was, it, so it was all there. Yeah, it just needed to be kind of dug out a little. It's bit, interesting, you know? right? Yeah, I, I was, I was amazed. I was grateful for that because I, looking at the play, I remember how, how kind of hard it was to learn it in the first place. I was every night, I was giving it a couple of hours of just homework, just yeah. drilling, drilling the lines to, to, so they were just like would come easy. Yeah. And I thought, oh, God, I've got to do all that again. You know, yeah. but actually it started to come back. But it came back in, ch it was really interesting. It came back in these chunks. Uh-huh. 
and I so then I then my my problem was working out how to put those chunks in the right order. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like you know, I'm, it's like you have all the ingredients, and you're right. kind of going, well, what goes in first, the onions or the peppers? <laughs> I mean, you, know, <laughs> you weren't quite sure. Yeah, and you just got it through repetition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, oh, you, you played uh, Diego Rivera too, so you've done a couple artists. Yeah, yeah. And you've never played Gauguin though. No, no, I've never played. You Gauguin. were kind of like him. I know. Well, you know, somebody, somebody, t- somebody sent me. Um, a photo, or no, a painting of Gauguin, yeah, of, of, like a self-portrait. Yeah, no, that's the one I'm thinking and of. I was, yeah, and I, I, I looked up and, and he said, you know, and he, and he sent it to me with a little note saying, look familiar. Yeah, it's like it's like the, the whole side of his head and some of the yeah, Tahitian I was amazed. Yeah. stuff in the background. That's yeah, right. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, but I've I've never been asked to play him. Oh, that'd be yeah, maybe one of those. I I think there was. Let's a, get on that, Mark. Let's I, get on. Okay, to that. I'm making note of it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about. Uh, let's finish up by talking about this uh, this podcast. Yes, Angel of Vine. What is that? Well, basically, it's uh, it's a ten part podcast, and it's it's a combination of it's a bit it's a combination of like. L.A. Noir uh-huh. and little element of time travel, yeah. little element of documentary. Yeah. The premise is that um, a stash of tapes yeah. are discovered. Yeah. And the tapes are of a re- long-retired uh, police officer on the LAPD yeah. in the 50s working on a case, working on a case that was never resolved. And it's him recording his in, his interviews his encounters what, is it a murder people. case it's a murder case yeah it's from it's the kind 50s of, it's, yeah so it's, it's like true detective kind, kind of? of and it's loosely based on the black dahlia story. oh oh that was earlier though no yeah but it, but it's got this kind of uh it's got this sort of you know the tapes are discovered yeah and it's how this character starts working on the tapes and going through them and gets caught up in this case and wants to try and solve the case sort of like a case, you know, going th- going back in time uh-huh. through these tapes, yeah, and so it's got this lovely. There's a so it's got it's got all those elements, and and it's 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 radio theater, yeah. You know, the, the people you often use these euphemisms like it's a movie in your head, yeah. It's it's a it's a film that's going on between your ears, you yeah. Know? But what it is, it's 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 radio, it's radio. Sure, theater. it's what it, it's it, what existed before television yeah, in a very before. kind of classic form. Yeah. It's that, that's so int- that's what's amazing about this medium is that all of these forms, which were the primary forms yeah. of entertainment, yeah. You know, before anything, that's right. Are, are now I mean, the back. Great, the great gift now, of course, is that we have mobility, which means that you're not stuck sitting in an armchair glued to your radio. You can hear you can hear this sure. anywhere. And do you guys record as a cast? Yeah, we record. Yeah. We recorded as a cast. We record. Uh, um, I did. Um, I did all my scene. I did my my scene with Joe Maniello, you know, in front of me, uh, and uh, I. Which is kind of unusual because very often you record on your own. But, yeah. But this scene was so kind of intense that it was, you know, Oliver Vacare, who's our writer and, and one of the producers, he felt that it was important that we could see each other and play off each other. And, and with that, that made a big difference. Made yeah. A big difference. Um, and it's a, it's a, and now, of course, it's all, of, you know, now all episodes are available. Sure. You know, wherever you get your podcast. Yeah. Just download uh, them and go ahead. Yeah. Enjoy your drive. Exactly. Have a good time I, I, at the gym. This is the thing. I'm I'm hearing this a lot now. People are saying that they they love their podcasts because because it kind of it they listen to them on their commute. 
Oh yeah, man. You know, and it's, and it's a habit that I've started to get into now. Yeah. I, I'm downloading podcasts now and listening to them while I'm driving. Sure, people do it at the gym. They do it at the commute. They yeah, do it secretly yeah. at work. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put your headphones back up. Well, it's great talking to you. Oh, thank you, Mark. Likewise. That likewise. was uh, that was uh, that was fun. And are you? Uh, oh, you were great in Vice too. That one scene. You had the thank one you. sort of high satire scene right. of uh, <laughs> of that movie. Did uh, what did Adam just call you up? And yeah. Go, well, he, uh, Adam because I'd done some work for uh, I'd done um, you know uh, some work before with with Funny or Die you know the, yeah. those guys and and um, they uh, he just called me and said you know he said I've got two parts they're not big but either one is yours yeah and I looked at the script and I I, I love the script and I, and I said let me do the waiter yeah you know because that's uh, that's that's in and out I mean literally in and out so, <laughs> yeah. and I said let me do the waiter and I'll do it without a credit. You know, so so hopefully, it'll be a nice surprise, and if it's not, no one will blame me. <laughs> Again, <laughs> Bob Hoskins rule. That's right. <laughs> but uh, so there's no credit. No, so I don't get credited. No, I'm not credited. Uh, what do you are you got? A, are you working on a movie now? Yeah, I'm. Uh, there's a couple of movies uh, in the. I, I did a, a film called um, uh, The Devil Has a Name, uh, directed by Edward James Olmos, who's, mm. a, who's a chum. Um, and that's that will be out. That's due out this year. Uh, there's also a movie called Saint Judy, which uh, with Michelle Monaghan. That um, we're now we now think it's going to be released round about uh, middle of February, end of February. Um, I played a part in it, but I was also I also uh, executive produ- one of the, I was one of the executive producers on that. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, yeah, so there's there's a couple of films in the can, and and I'm I'm working on a movie that I hope to direct later this year. Have you directed before? Never. Oh. Never. Perhaps that's why no one's returning my phone calls. But uh, I, I, I will persevere. <laughs> okay. Is it something you always wanted to do? Or it is. It is. And I'm. I'm. I. You know. It's. I've left it. I haven't left it too late. I don't think. But I've certainly. Um, you know. People say you've never directed before. Do you think you can direct? I said, well, I've. I've been on enough movies to know that. I, I know what not to do. Let's yeah. put it that way. I, I. I know. I think I know how to avoid mistakes, and I know how to run up. I, I know what what makes a day not go well yeah yeah it's it's all about the dp yeah it's all about the dp it's all about the dp and it's all about your assistant director as <laughs> yeah, well right know? ad and the dp yeah that's the, the, and then you you just pretend that you don't let anyone see how confused and frightened you are that's right yeah and and, and, and I, I, there was one there was one thing a director i worked with i said i said what if i said if i was if i was to direct a film what would be your one piece of advice and he said always have a decision when people ask you what they what you want them to do, always have an answer, even if it's the wrong one. Right, right. He said the worst thing you can do is kind of go, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> then nobody knows. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Molina, where do you want the camera? There. Yeah. Even right. if there is yeah, totally yeah. the wrong place. Because right. someone will say, are you sure? And you go, no, I'm not sure. Here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at least have you. Because yeah, that, yeah. that instill, at least if, 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 you're, if, you ha- if you've made up your mind about yeah. something, at least it got, it's reassuring. Right, sure. Yeah. They know someone's in charge. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. That was great. I learned some things that I didn't know about that scene. How genius was that? Again, uh, Alfred is a, you can see him in everything he's ever been in, which could take a lifetime. 
but he's also the voice actor on the 10-part narrative mystery podcast, The Angel of Vine, available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget as well, studies show that security systems deter burglars, which is why securing your home is truly a necessity. At Simply Safe, they believe fear has no place in a place like home. So they make Simply Safe ridiculously smart with 24-7 monitoring for just $14.99 a month. So go with home security you can trust. Simply Safe by heading over to simplysafewtf.com today. That's simplysafewtf.com. It's early in the morning and uh, and I and w- me getting excited about a new angle on an old riff <laughs> probably... Uh, Made my neighbors hate me at 8.30 in the morning on a Sunday. Okay, here we go.